Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today is episode 263 for March 14th, 2022. And today we've got a great interview for you. I've been talking about this for some time because I recorded it some time ago, actually. I'm kind of flush with interviews. We've got plenty of stuff in the pipeline. It's great, actually. It's a good problem to have. Anyway, we're going to be talking today with Tony Chen from Microsoft. Uh, he's a security engineer there, and he is going to be telling us about this thing called Pluton. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second before the interview. Real quick, a couple news items. Uh, if you haven't, be sure to update Firefox, browser, and Windows. There are some really big uh, security updates for those in the last week or so. And, and again, if you want to get those things like right away, the best way to do that is to follow me either on Mastodon, Twitter, or Facebook. Whenever those things pop up, I try to post something right away there. So, you know, if you want the cutting edge, you know, just across the newswire kind of events like those, you definitely want to be following me on one of those social media outlets. It's been a while, but I finally got a really nice podcast review. That was a welcome surprise when I did my kind of weekly check for new reviews. And I was just interviewed by David Reese from Malwarebytes. I've known him a long time, uh, back in, from the EFF days, back when he was there. Uh, he's been on my show several times, and he'll be on my show coming up soon, actually. Uh, we're interviewing each other, a little cross-interview there. Uh, but anyway, he's at Malwarebytes now, and uh, he interviewed me recently about my de-Googling efforts. And that episode should drop today, I think, Monday, in other words, uh, or Tuesday, perhaps. So there's a link to the general podcast, Lock and Code, uh, that's the name of their podcast. There's a link to the show notes to that at the top page. So probably the top entry there, or if I'm not now, I will be soon. So uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I really like David. He and I get along really well, and it was a fun interview. So uh, I know I've talked about it here already, but it's, an, you know, it's a different take on it. And he asked me some different questions and a little more give and take as opposed to me just talking at you. So anyway, uh, check that out for sure. And be sure to stay tuned and listen uh, after the interview because I've got some important updates on the big fifth anniversary giveaway. All right, so let me quickly set up today's interview. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's going to sound really technical, and it is, <laughs> but don't let that throw you off. So you, you don't have to take a test on this stuff. You don't have to explain it to anybody else. But the idea of getting into some of these technical details and some of these technical interviews is I just want you to appreciate and understand how difficult it is to get security right. You don't need to be able to understand these things on a daily basis. Uh, and after this interview, you could forget a lot of it. But I think it's important to get the gist of what is happening under the covers in your computers. And when we talk about computers, we're not just talking about, you know, your desktops and your laptops. Your smartphone is a computer. Anything in your house right now that connects to the Internet is a computer. It has a computer chip on it the, of the kind we're going to be talking about today. And as such, it needs security. And doing it right is difficult. And so that's why efforts like this Pluton thing we're going to talk about today with Tony Chen are so important. So real quick, let me just define a, a couple terms we throw around. Uh, we talk about motherboards and systems on a chip, and we and while we try to explain that as we go, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more here before we get into it. If you've ever opened up a computer, the really big circuit board inside there, it's usually black or green kind of colored, uh, with a whole bunch of little rectangular things all over it, that is the motherboard, and those are chips that are soldered onto that motherboard. And that motherboard is like a fiberglass sandwich of wires, Wires that you could see with your naked eye, if you look closely enough, connecting all those chips together. And then realize that inside those little rectangular black chip packages are a, a whole bunch of other wires. And those are super, super tiny. And you may have heard when they talk about, you know, 
processors, CPUs, you know, central processing units or other chips for computers these days. They talk about, you know, five nanometer processes. Uh, and so nanometers is kind of the, the width of the little wires inside those silicon chips that connect all the little parts of the computer chip together. It's kind of like taking a motherboard and then shrinking it a billion times uh, to get even smaller circuitry inside these little prepackaged chips. So how, how big is a nanometer? What, what does five nanometers even mean? Well, if you've got a ruler handy and that ruler has both inches and metric units, especially for those of us in English units uh, areas like in the United States, you'll see on there centimeters and millimeters. And so a millimeter is you know, one thousandth of a meter. 10 to the minus three, a nanometer is a thousand thousand times smaller than that. 10 to the minus nine. It is super tiny. Like a human hair, I think is maybe 80,000 nanometers thick, 80,000. And hemoglobin in your blood is about five nanometers wide. So it is super, super tiny. So today we're going to kind of talk about physical security at that level because they're wires and it's electricity you can probe those wires to see the electrical signals that are traveling on those wires, the, the data. And some of that data is important secret data. And so if you can get to those wires, in certain cases, you can extract secret data. And that is what this whole Pluton thing is about today. And by the way, we talk about sniffing data. <laughs> when we talk about sniffing data, we don't really mean smelling data. It's a matter of probing and with electrical signals, with the special you know, monitoring equipment, being able to see what the signals are on that data. We also talk about sniffing data in the air, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. That's data traveling wirelessly over the air using radio waves. And with the right equipment, you can quote unquote, sniff that data as well. It's a matter of monitoring that data and seeing what's going on. That's what we mean when we say sniffing data. Okay, so again, don't let all that technical stuff throw you off. Just understand that as we're going through all of this stuff today, what we're trying to explain is why it's difficult to get security right on computers and how we learn over the years and make things better. And then knowing this, when you're going to buy a new Windows PC and you see, hey, this one's got Pluton technology and that one doesn't, why you might want to go for the one with Pluton technology. And we're going to talk about all of that right now with Tony Chen. He's a software engineer and security architect at Microsoft. So let's get to our interview. All right, Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So this is, this is a highly technical topic. This is, this is, we're going to kind of get into some kind of some serious stuff here, but uh, I think it's important to understand. And I, and especially on the basis of what you guys are doing, we're going to have to lay a little bit of a foundation here, a little bit of a technical foundation. So if you would kind of indulge us, could you maybe give us kind of a refresher on some of the basics of cryptography and encryption? Like what, is, what does it do for us? And, you know, what parts of the cryptographic system are public versus, you know, what, maybe what's secret? Sure, sure. So cryptography is used heavily in computer security. And there's two main goals uh, cryptography achieve. One is encryption, which is keeping something secret. The other is integrity, which is to prevent people from modifying a message. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if you take a typical message, the best, the easiest way to think about it is like the Enigma machine used in World War II. Mm -hmm. What the Germans wanted to do is to prevent messages for the ally to know what's in the message. The ally know the message was sent. It knows how long the message is, but they don't know what's in the message. 
because the message turned into gobbledygook. And that's what encryption achieves. And we modern day cryptography uses a uh, much stronger algorithm than used back in those days to achieve this encryption. And then the second goal uh, cryptography used for is for integrity, uh, meaning signing of messages. So there's also certain scenarios where I don't care if you see my message, but I care if you modify the message. Mm -hmm. So imagine a scenario where I'm sending a, a message to somebody, but I'm having unreliable couriers send this message and I don't want the couriers to modify the message. In such a case, it's important that I somehow sign it such that you know only I could have created this message and nobody mm -hmm. else could afford this message. And then there's obvious cases where you need both encryption mm -hmm. and integrity, in which you case you have to both sign the message and encrypt the message. So that's also a common, common scenario. So, but these are the two most common use cases for cryptography. And modern day cryptography has evolved to where the algorithm to do the, the, the crypto is public. Everybody can see what the algorithm is, do analysis, critique it. The strength of the, the, the encryption or integrity lies in the keys. Uh, the length of the key is very important. And keeping the key secrets become very important, not the algorithm secret, but the keys. And so that's the way cryptography has evolved to this point. So it's all about keeping keys secret. And, and that's what uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about later is about. Okay, so one of the big enhancements uh, or achievements in cryptography came in the 70s when they figured out that you didn't have to have the same key to lock a message as to unlock a message. We went from, uh, like back in the Enigma days even, it was, it was symmetric cryptography where the, the key to, to lock something was the same one used to unlock it. But then they came up with this asymmetric thing, which allowed for a, both a public and private key, which was really cool, right? It was a way, it was a way for you to like give your public key away to everybody so that somebody who wanted to send you a message could lock it with that key. But then you had, you were the only person with a secret key and that allowed you to, to unlock that message. And you were the only person who could unlock that message. So when we're talking about keys, how do we keep these things secret? Like do most people generate these things by themselves? I mean, how do these things maybe relate to passwords or passphrases? We, we throw these around a lot, but I think it's kind of important to understand, like, what is a key? Like, where is it? Where did it come from? Did I, did I create it? Do I manage it? How do we deal with keys today? Right, right. That's a good question. So yes, you're right. There's been a new invention called asymmetric cryptography, where there's uh, separate private and public key pairs. Before this, it was just uh, symmetric cryptography where the key used to encrypt and decrypt something is the same key. So both sides need to possess the same keys for encryption and decryption. And both sides needs to possess the same key for signing something and verifying something was signed correctly. But with asymmetric crypto, you can actually sign something using a private key and then verifying using only a public key. And the trick is that these key pairs, the public-private key pair, even if you know the public key, you cannot derive what the private key is. Mm -hmm. That's a very critical part. And then similarly for encryption, and you can encrypt a message with a public key and only the person with the private key is able to decrypt the message. This way you can send a message and know that there's only one particular party uh, that's able to decrypt this message. So modern day passwords, you can think of as symmetric keys. They, they, they're literally a very short string. 
what actually happens typically is people don't directly use the password as the key. They do a what's called a one-way hash to convert the password into a, a somewhat stronger key and use that as the symmetric key. And what a one-way hash is, you can think of it as, as a special function that takes a string of bits as an input and outputs a what they call a digest, a shorter fixed size string of bits to represent this entire message. But the trick is that if you flip any bit in the original message, roughly half the bits in the digest will randomly flip. So the whole thing is kind of munged together in a, in a cryptographically strong way, such that if you know the digest of something, it's very hard to forge another message that has the exact same digest. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, one-way hash is a very critical building component that's also used in cryptography, uh, along with ability to generate random numbers. And so back to your question, the, the password is used as a symmetric key, but it's usually the one-way hash of the password is used as the key. But we in the, the world of authentication have come to realize that a better way to do this is if everybody just use asymmetric key for authentication. So if I just used a, a private key on my side to prove I'm Tony, and whoever wants to verify whether I'm Tony or not only needs to possess the public key, this will be a better way to do authentication. And the core reason why it's better is that the servers that need to verify me don't need to know my password. They only need to know uh, my public key. So we read in the news all the time these days that uh, another data center has been compromised. Mm -hmm. You know, this company has been compromised. And what happens every time these compromise happens is a, the list of a bunch of users' passwords sometimes get leaked because of this. But if the world were to move to asymmetric uh, authentication, then all the servers would have would be a list of public keys. And it's okay if all those leak out because that still doesn't give you information to pretend to be me uh, on the website. So that's kind of the, the status of, of, of this. But uh, one other thing to note is that asymmetric keys are typically much longer. Mm. And it's something we typically use a random number generate to generate uh, in, in a very uh, controlled manner. So it's not something that can be derived from a password, but you can use a password to encrypt the private key such that only the person that possesses a PIN or password can derive the private key to do things. You talked specifically about logging into like Amazon.com or IRS.gov or some sort of a website kind of a thing, but it, mm -hmm. does it work the same way my computer? And because we, I think this is, we're going to kind of get to the point where uh, we're going to talk today about authenticating to your computer and doing things locally and encrypted on your computer. So when I walk into my computer, if you have a, a, an account set up on your computer with a password, which I strongly encourage everyone to do, so that when I sit down at my computer, only I should be able to log in because only I know the password. Behind the scenes, what is going on when I do that? I sit down, I type in my name or my user ID, and I type in my password. Walk us through what's going on like under the covers. We take that password, we hash it. Is, is my computer checking 
you know, the password I entered versus the, the same password stored locally. What is, what is actually going on? And, and quick follow-up, a lot of computers now have like fingerprint scanners or maybe even face ID. How does that work as well? Right, right. So um, what typically happens when you sign into your computer is you type in this password and they might, they'll probably do a one-way hash of the password to come up with a digest. And in your computer, you will store this digest somewhere and, and just say, this, this is the correct digest of the password for Tony. And then when I type it in and I log on every day, this one-way hash will happen and a comparison is done between what's recorded on the computer of, of what should be the one-way hash of my password and compared to what I just typed. And if it matches, that means I just typed in the valid password for Tony and my computer allows me to log in as me. But recently there's a lot of biometric uh, related authentication also being developed. You could argue it's a weaker form of authentication. It basically relies on the hardware on the computer kind of either seeing you or seeing your your fingerprint Mm. and then matching with what historically when you first set up the computer, what your face and what your thumbprint looks like and doing a a comparison, and if it agrees it's a match, then it'll believe that that is truly you here in front of the computer and also let you sign in without the need to type in a password. So it's an alternative form of uh, authentication. Let me paraphrase that back to you. Let me see if I got that straight. So what we don't actually store, like if I, my password was go boilers, go, you know, which is a horrible password, but let's, let's say go boilers was my, was my password from my computer. Somewhere on my computer is not stored the phrase go boilers. So that when I enter that, the computer says, well, that matches this we're in. What it does instead is it hashes my password go boilers into some gobbledygook, you know, one way function set of bits. And then that is actually what's stored. And the purpose for that is that, so let's say somebody were to malware to get on, on my computer or something, and they were looking for passwords, they wouldn't actually find my password. They would find this hash instead, which as you said earlier, is really hard to reverse to find that my password was go boilers. Correct? Correct. That's what it's done. Okay, good. All right. So now most computers today come with an option to uh, enable full hard disk encryption. First of all, how does that work? I guess it's kind of similar, but how does that work under the covers? And a lot of people ask me this question, you know, if I do this, is that going to really slow things down? Because, you know, everything's encrypted now. My computer's got to keep decrypting and encrypting stuff. Does it make it really slow? And then if you've ever done this before, you've noticed that a lot, sometimes it will ask you for a passphrase. Sometimes it just says, okay, I'm doing it. Thanks. Come back later. It'll be done. So if that's the case, where's the key? Where's the password for this? And what happens if that key gets lost? So walk us through kind of the, the basics for hard disk encryption and how, how that functions. Right. So for hard disk encryption, uh, a traditional symmetric encryption is used. A random strong symmetric key is generated to encrypt your hard drive. And yes, it will cause a slowdown, but modern day CPUs have pretty fast crypto acceleration instructions for the uh, uh, Windows operating system to use. And the feature specifically in Windows that, that does this is called BitLocker. Mm-hmm. So when BitLocker does all this encryption, it uses uh, CPU acceleration instructions to do it. There's a slight performance slowdown, but uh, usually it's not that user perceivable. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that 
every I.O. you do with the disk needs to go through. Every time you read from the disk, you need to decrypt something. Every time you write to the disk, you need to encrypt something. Now, this, this key that's used to do all this encryption, usually when the system is at rest, we don't kind of keep this key around. We try to further encrypt it with something else. And typically, that's, that's a, another pin. So mm. BitLocker has the feature where you can, when you set it up, you can say, I want to protect my key using a pin. And so you can specify either a four or six-digit pin. And what they do is they use that pin to further encrypt your key such that uh, when somebody gets the hard drive, they don't actually see the key. They just see the the key encrypted with the pin. So they still need to kind of figure out what the pin is in order to recover the key. But whether the user wants a pin or not, it's a user choice. Uh, And some, a lot of users feel like it's inconvenient to have to type this Mm -hmm. in every time my computer boots and opt not to do that. Uh, Your security is obviously weaker when that happens. And in, in such a case, we rely on other means to secure the the, the, the key that, that in general will be weaker. Okay. But isn't there by default, I think Windows and in Mac OS, is to have these keys stored against your cloud account such that if you ever, I don't know, I guess if maybe you're, there was a problem with your computer somehow that, it, that maybe the key got corrupted or lost, you could still decrypt your disk based on uh, recovering from the cloud. Is that true? Yes, yes. Both uh, Windows and Mac OS uh, support features like this. It's possible that there's bad things that happen and that the key is lost for one reason or another. And it's to a customer losing all the data on your hard drive is a very uh, critical thing. So there's a backup mechanism where uh, the key to decrypt your disk is also stored in the cloud uh, by these companies. And in such a case, you can log on, prove your credentials, prove you're really who you say you are, and then and then get the key needed to recover the key on your hard drive, so you can you can see your hard drive again. But this doesn't mean that the the company that holds these keys can see what's in your hard drive. They just hold the key. The, your hard drive is still in your possession, and uh, nobody can see it unless they get access to your hard drive. Real quick, let's dig deeper on that just to be sure we understand that because some people's threat models are different than others and convenience versus security is always a trade-off. But if if I'm really worried about what's the contents of my hard drive, would it be possible, you say that the like Microsoft and Apple don't have access to the key, but if they were subpoenaed, if there was a warrant, could they use that key to decrypt your hard drive? Or is, is it done in such like a zero knowledge kind of a situation where even in that case, they couldn't do anything? You can recover it, but for some reason, employees at those companies cannot. So I, I don't know for sure what, uh, what Apple does with macOS, but in the Windows case, if we were subpoenaed to give out that key, uh, we do possess the key and give it out. But you would still need the contents of the hard drive to right. decrypt the hard drive also. So that's, that's something law enforcement would have to go do on, on their own. Obviously, Microsoft isn't going to help in that regard. <laughs> Right. Right. So obviously that would be part of a regular warrant process where the, I need the computer and then I also need the key. And that's probably all part of the same warrant and, you know, law enforcement procedures. Uh, I'm pretty sure Apple's the same way that if you decide to store the key with them for your convenience up in the cloud, then that would mean that if Apple were properly served, 
uh, that they could give that up as well. So what and what I recommend to some people whose threat model is such that they don't like that is at least on macOS, I'm pretty and I'm guessing Windows probably allows this too, is you can choose and save your own key. But then if you lose it, you're screwed. You took the responsibility of holding on to that key. And if you if you lose it, then you're in trouble. Right. I, I do believe there's an option to not do this backup. And also the other thing you can do is remember I talked about having a pin to over encrypt mm. your key. So by having that pin and you're the only person in the world that knows that pin, you also uh, make it more secure. If, if you didn't tell the FBI your pin, they would need to spend more energy to try to come up with that, that, that key. Right. Okay. So we're honing in on, <laughs> we're honing in on what you guys are doing. But so the next crucial step in this is there's all these keys floating around. There's all, I've got encrypted hard drives. I've got other things that I might want to sign digitally. Uh, and so there's, there's these keys that are available to the operating system somehow, because it's got to show me my files. If I ask for them, right. I've logged in, it's got to decrypt mm -hmm. those and show those to me. How do computers and our smart devices do this as well? You know, our, our phones need to do this as well. They're just computers. How do they manage these keys and passwords in such a way that, for instance, if I were malware on that system, I couldn't get access to these things? Or maybe I can. How does the computer manage these secrets? Yes. So um, since we've come to the realization that these keys are pretty important, they're kind of especially valuable assets, and we don't want them just lying around in memory on your computer on a regular basis because that means any malware can, can directly grab these keys and steal these keys. So we want to protect these keys further by putting them in another, think of it as another small microprocessor on, on the system that does nothing but hold the key, secure the key, and if requested and, and, and uh, satisfies policy, let you use the key to encrypt, decrypt, sign, or, or verify something. So that's... That's the model uh, both Apple and Microsoft use. In Apple's case, they have a, a small microprocessor that they call the Secure Enclave that they've included in all their, their custom silicon. And that is used to do all key-related storage and, and operations. In Microsoft's case, we many, many years ago, we adopted a standard called TPM, mm -hmm. stands for Trusted Platform Module. Mm -hmm. And we've been using TPM all this time to store all these critical keys, including the keys used by BitLocker to you know, decrypt your hard drive. And so that's the, the strategy Microsoft has been pursuing is to use TPMs to store these keys. Right. Now we come to your project. So with all of that as background and foundation, tell us what the Pluton project is and what problem is it attempting to solve? Yeah. So when the trusted platform module was originally defined, the design was mainly based on having a separate discrete chip that you put on the motherboard. And this, this, this small extra chip would uh, handle all the keys and things like that. But because it's a separate chip, there needs to be a bus between the main CPU and this separate chip that does, handles all the communication. And through this bus, keys will go back and forth and, and all of that. In the early days when the TPM was defined, they basically made assumption that physical attacks are out of scope mm -hmm. for the TPM. And at that time, people mainly used desktop computers, laptops wasn't that popular. 
And the, the thought was, you know, computers are, are in secure offices. We don't need to worry about somebody that actually has access to your computer. But over time, this, this statement has gradually not become true. More and more people use laptops. Laptops get stolen. Laptops get, get lost. And then once you lose your laptop, you're wondering to yourself, gee, could whoever get that my laptop see all the information on my laptop? Mm. So now... The fact that the TPM is a discrete separate chip from the CPU with a bus in the middle that attackers can sniff the key as it's flying back and forth becomes a critical issue. And so what Microsoft is trying to do with Pluton is come to the realization that, you know, the TPM really deserves to be inside the SOC. Uh, It shouldn't be a separate chip that we have to talk to. And... The, the Pluton effort is to create this small microprocessor where we can implement TPM functionality inside the SOC itself and improve the security of computer systems uh, that use TPM. All right. I want to unpack some of that a little bit. First of all, you're talking about a separate chip. So if, you, if you've ever opened up a computer and looked inside, there's usually a big green board, <laughs> green because it's mm-hmm. a printed circuit board and they're by convention, usually green, not always, but uh, with lots of these computer chips on them. One of them being the big honking, you know, CPU usually. Sometimes there might be a graphics processor on there uh, and all sorts of other little smaller chips. And you're saying that one of the other little rectangular or square black chips on that board was a dedicated security chip called a trusted platform module. When you're talking about a bus, what you're really saying is that there's a communications channel between the big CPU, the big brain, and these other little tiny TPM chips that basically is wires on this board. They're they're embedded in the board. If you look at them, they're called traces. They're but they're metal, and they're they're metal wires like any other wires. And so what you're saying is, because those wires are exposed, because somebody could actually go in there with what we call a logic analyzer or a tool that would allow them to see the electrical signals going back and forth on those wires between the TPM and the CPU, they can actually access some of the private data, correct? Correct, which is state is correct. And in the early days, we thought this was kind of complicated. But as we've learned through various, for example, Xbox hacking and stuff, it turns out these things are easier than than we think they are. And a lot of people are actually doing this for game consoles, and they can certainly do the same thing for, for PCs. And the Xbox thing, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was one of the really the driving things here, because this is something Xbox, if you don't know, is something owned by Microsoft. And it's a game console. And so there are games that you want to play on this thing. And a lot of these games have DRM or digital rights management, meaning that they're locked down to some degree. You're not supposed to be able to do certain things with them. And so what you were finding, I guess, is as technology became more pervasive and cheaper and people got smarter or whatever, hackers were able to open up their Xboxes basically and kind of sniff the bits going across these wires between these two chips and hack their Xboxes, correct? So wasn't Xbox hacking one of the things that actually kind of drove the Pluton project? Yes, that that is correct. So the first two generations of Xbox, both the original Xbox and the Xbox 360, did get hacked in various ways to enable people to pirate games and cheat and starting with the Xbox One generation, we, we strive to do better. And we, we at, literally added a Pluton security processor in every single Xbox 
uh, to solve this problem. Uh, there's lots of other things you need to do besides adding a Pluton to make the Xbox secure, but it was a critical element. And from that effort, we were able to prevent piracy and cheating on Xbox One. And now we're applying the what we learned there to the PC ecosystem. And that, that's what led to this Pluton effort to also put a security processor inside the SOC of chips used for PCs and not just game consoles. Perfect. You queued up my next question. So you you refer to an SOC. Explain to the audience what what is an SOC and what does it mean when you say that you that you like put Pluton on the SOC? Like in, in layman's terms, as best as you could describe, what does that actually mean? Right. The term SOC stands for system on a chip, and it's typically used to describe you know one of those black rectangles. In fact, it's the main big one on your motherboard. So it used to be that it was just the CPU, but in in modern days, they've added more functionality into this big chip. And so now people typically refer to SOC to reflect the fact mm-hmm. it's not just the CPU. The GPU might also be in there. There's like an IO peripherals that also in there, like literally close to all entire system is on this chip. So that's why we call it a system on a chip. And these system on a chips, they typically have one gigantic piece of um, this uh, silicon die that's used to, to carry all the logic. Mm-hmm. And these silicon dies, uh, you might have heard of terms like uh, 10 nanometers, seven nanometer, mm-hmm. five nanometers, uh, different technologies where the gates and, and the wires on these chips are getting ever thinner and thinner. And because they're so thin, it's almost impossible for a hacker to break into a die to modify or detect what signals going through one of these five nanometer wires. So it becomes a different type of attack that in reality uh, is very, very hard in order to sniff the, the messages going through these, these wires. But if you use a separate discrete chip, like the TPM originally was, where there's literally a, a very clear wire going through the motherboard from one chip to the other, that is very easy for an attacker to sniff. So we're trying to move these wires between the TPM and the CPU from the motherboard into these small five nanometer wires inside the same die. Right. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Logistically speaking, Microsoft doesn't make these systems on a chip, right? So they have specced out this Pluton, I guess, hardware design or a circuit design that would be part of that super small silicon die uh, that we're talking about. But Microsoft doesn't produce those at AMD or Intel and some of these other companies, or in case of mobile, like a Qualcomm or Apple. So given that Microsoft doesn't make these things, are you working with these other companies to have them make them? Are you licensing the technology to them? And then how soon might we see these things in the real world? Like, is it, is it ready for production or is it you're still years down the road? Yes. So, so yes, we have been working with other companies. Uh, like you said, Microsoft does not make these SOCs ourselves. Uh, we did kind of make them for the Xbox, but that's a very special project. Mm-hmm. For general purpose PCs, we, we, we don't make them. And unlike Apple, which makes their own uh, CPU chips, they, they can put the secure enclave in it. We have to work with uh, these various silicon vendors, but everybody in the industry realizes this is an important problem. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to say um, all the major 
SLC vendors that that run Windows, this includes AMD, Intel, and, and Qualcomm, they're all on board to eventually ship something like this. The AMD Ryzen 6000 series that was recently announced will have Pluton Mm. uh, available inside the SOC, and I believe they're shipping this year. Mm. Uh, Also, the Qualcomm Snapdragon 8CX chip that they announced recently will also have have Pluton. Um, And stay tuned for announcements from Intel. We're also working with them. Okay, cool. These trusted platform modules are are secure enclaves or... uh, the Pluton project that we're talking about, all these little secret vaults, will they be used just for things like the operating system and the application software that we're talking about? Or does it also affect things like lower level firmware things like, you know, device drivers or even the BIOS? Yes, the TPM is an open standard and um, a lot of BIOS vendors also use the TPM to, to do things. The BIOS might also need to store a key or something like that. So yes, it is available to all the drivers and even bias. And so the, the Pluton TPM that we are building will be available for bias vendors to, to use also. Okay. And how do these things interact with, I know that another secure process that has been implemented over the years and uh, an attempt to keep malware off our machines, especially really nasty, persistent malware is, is something called a secure boot process, where there's some procedure involving these security keys and, and and trusted platform modules to make sure that whatever software you're loading, like when you actually turn on your computer and it's going through this process of booting Windows in your case, how does Pluton play in that? Or I guess maybe back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit how Secure Boot works with relation to uh, TPMs and Pluton. What, what, is, what is the kind of, uh, I know for a layman, what's the high level thinking about how that prevents malware from getting on my computer. Right. So in the case where you did not associate a pin with your BitLocker uh, password, basically the TPM would be obligated to surrender the key out to the CPU to say, oh, well, here's, here's the key to decrypt the hard drive. And, and that's how the system would boot. But the problem is somebody that steals your laptop could make the system boot potentially very bad code, uh, code under the attacker's control. Mm. And then this code will go ask the the TPM, hey, why don't you give me your BitLocker decryption key? Mm. And the TPM would not be wiser to know the difference between, is this a regular boot with trustworthy code talking to me or is this bad code talking to me? So the way this problem is solved is the TPM actually also takes measurements of what the system is booting And secure boot is a process where we say only trusted signed code should be used when we start booting the system. Um, And the TPM will monitor what code is actually being booted. And the the one-way hash of all these code would be measured by the TPM and recorded by the TPM. And the TPM later on will say, oh, you're coming to me to ask for this BitLocker decryption key. Let me double check that so far as we've been booting, all the measurements I've gathered matches what it should be so that I can believe that I'm truly talking to trustworthy code that I really should surrender the key to as opposed to attacker-controlled code. And that's how this, this problem is solved. Okay, so next up, will moving to Pluton mean that 
all the manufacturers will be somehow required to use Microsoft's software update system? Does it, maybe this is a misunderstanding from the background research I did on this, but what it sounded like to me is that if, if you incorporate Pluton into your SOC, that you are now part of the, like a Windows update process. I don't know if it, I assume it's cloud-based or maybe not, but all of a sudden, basically now these these manufacturers of these SOCs are now, I guess, required to interact with you guys in order to boot the software or get software updates. So do I understand that correctly? And and is there kind of a related question? You said it's an open standard for TPM. Is it also open standard for Pluton? Is this is this something that anybody can implement or do they have to license it? Kind of how's that work? So Pluton just follows the TPM standards. So there there is mm. no um, extra standard that needs to be defined in terms of talking to the TPM. Okay. Now, the, the first question you ask is about the fact that Microsoft supplies Pluton, and if the firmware needs to be updated, whether we need to ask Microsoft for an update. Mm-hmm. The answer is no. Basically, Silicon vendors, actually, uh, a lot of Silicon vendors actually license small components in their chip from other vendors, and they may need to get firmware from these other vendors also. So these silicon vendors like AMD and Intel, they will just gather this, this uh, Pluton firmware from us and they'll distribute it to the OEMs that make computers as part of their, their reference firmware or whatever. And if there's an update, we would supply it to, to the SOC vendors and they could forward it to the OEMs to distribute in, in a patch as they see fit, just like any other component inside the SOC. There's lots of uh, SOC vendors uh, license a, 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 a camera component inside their SOC from a different vendor and I need to get firmware updates from that camera vendor. This is the exact same thing. Uh, okay. Nothing says you have to forever get your update from that camera vendor. Okay. So to summarize then, is it, are you saying that basically that there will be really no effective difference in how software updates are, are requested or downloaded or approved using Pluton versus a standard TPM chip? Correct. With one caveat that if your system is running Windows, we might be more aggressive in using mm-hmm. Windows Update to update the Pluton firmware to be more up to date. But that's not a requirement. You don't have to use Windows. But when you do use Windows, you get the extra benefit of being more up to date. Gotcha. I know most of my audience probably doesn't care about this, but I'm sure there's a segment that would be very curious to know this question, and that is, will Pluton have any effect whatsoever on my ability to either dual boot a machine? Let, let's say if I want my machine to to have two partitions on the hard drive and I want to boot Windows sometimes, and I want to boot Linux some other times. Or if I just want to, I just I bought something from Dell that came with Windows, I don't want Windows, now I want to put Linux on it. Will Pluton any differently from TPM, cause any problems with me wanting to do either of those things? No, Pluton will not prevent you from booting Linux. You're still free to do whatever you want. Pluton just provides TPM functionality. And whether that Linux uses TPM depends on the right Linux drivers being there. But uh, Pluton itself does not control what operating system boots on the system. They're not related at all. Okay, great. Thank you. I'd like to kind of talk about the little computers around us, the ones, the IoT devices, the Internet of Things devices, because they have just gone nuts. I mean, we've got so many little, tiny, cheap 
things, our toasters, our light bulbs, our refrigerators, you know, our televisions, everything wants to connect to the internet now. And so all these little things have computers in them and they all connect to the internet. But the, you know, the security is often an afterthought with these things if it's a thought at all. And par- partially because it's expensive. I mean, you got to pay engineers to do this and you got to do it right and you got to upkeep, you know, around all these kind of security features. It's, and oftentimes there's extra hardware involved. So will Pluton play in this space at all? It, it, will that help us make our IoT devices more secure than they already are? Yes, I believe the answer is yes, but it'll take a, a lot more time. Um, we're obviously starting Pluton with the PC ecosystem where um, there's more money involved. Like uh, there's a PC costs a lot more than an mm-hmm. IoT device, so we can we can solve the problem first. But on IoT devices, I agree there's there's a big security problem there, and by having a separate security procedure to do sensitive key related operations, it's a good thing even in the IoT space. So one of the problems we encounter with IoT devices is if you tell an IoT vendor you need to spend a dollar or two buying a separate TPM to put on your put on your IoT device, that one or two dollars for an IoT device is a big big increase on the price of the entire IoT device, and most vendors are not willing to do that. Pluton kind of can help with this problem in the sense that it's a security process that's put in the SOC itself. So if we get SOC vendors that Mm. make SOCs for IoT, they include it and it literally becomes kind of free Hmm. because at the end, Pluton does increase the die area Mm. of the silicon a little bit. So there is a little bit of cost associated, but it's usually in pennies. It's not the one or $2 it takes to buy a complete separate chip and package it and everything. So I do believe Pluton and this kind of technology will help IoT down the road, but we need, it takes time. When we're right now, we're still starting with let's convince the SOC vendors that make SOC for uh, big computers, put them in. After some time, when this is proven technology, we can move to the next step and convince SOC vendors that make SOCs for IoT devices to also put them in. Uh, but that's the next phase. Gotcha. Microsoft had this program uh, a couple of years ago that I recall reading and I thought really sounded cool in the IoT space called Azure Sphere. Uh, is that still going? And how does that relate, if at all, to Pluton? Yes, Azure Sphere is still an active project. And um, the origins of Azure Sphere is actually also based on the security processor that we put in Xbox One. So it's closely related to, to, to Pluton. It's all a technology that originated from Xbox and it's going into Azure Sphere, it's going into Pluton. Yeah, it, yeah, they're all deeply related. And so tell us a little bit about that for the audience's sake. What does that do? And do we, it's, it's been long enough now that are there products out there today that are using this that we would know? I'm not the right person to ask that question. I do believe there are some, some products out. I I recall there was an announcement that Starbucks was going to put Azure Sphere chips inside their coffee machines. Hmm. To my understanding, there's been a few SOCs that have been built with Pluton in it uh, for the purpose of Azure Sphere. But uh, we and we'd like to grow the number of SOCs that have this capability. And that's what the Azure Sphere team is trying to do. Okay, cool. Thank you. 
So if there are bugs found in the software or new features added, the, the, you know, all software has bugs and we always want to make it better. So as these things come along, will the chips that contain the Pluton technology, will they be remotely upgradable? Or all of a sudden now, if there's some big problem found, you know, maybe meltdown kind of stuff or Spectre kind of thing, you know, some horrible thing went wrong and they want to redesign this. Is it something that could be fixed remotely or, do, or am I looking at buying a new CPU at that point? In most cases, yes, it's something we can fix remotely by a firmware update. Most problems tend to be fixable by firmware, as witnessed by um, if people are very familiar, Tesla always releases firmware <laughs> updates to fix a lot of problems in, in their cars. Yeah. Obviously, there's also things you can't fix in firmware if literally the hardware is completely broken or the hardware is just wrong, it doesn't do something. And in those cases, you'll need to buy a new computer. But uh, in most cases, at least for, uh, for bugs, we do plan to update the Pluton firmware aggressively to fix all the bugs we know about. This is also one of our reasons why we're advocating for Pluton, because Microsoft can, through Windows Update, update the firmware of Pluton much more frequently compared to a discrete TPM vendor going through the OEM update process, um, which could take months to update. So this way we can get rid of security flaws in systems much faster for the customer. Wonderful. Wonderful explanations. So before we go, I, you being a security guy, uh, I'd like to kind of maybe back up a little bit and think more broadly. I'm curious, you know, given everything we've discussed today and some of the kind of the, the, the threats that we've kind of hinted at with that we were trying to solve with Pluton, what kind of recommendations might you have for protecting our data on our devices today? And obviously this is pre-Pluton since you guys haven't done this. What, what are some best practices when you're talking to your friends and family and they're saying, Tony, what do I, what, what do, I do here? How do I make sure my data is safe? Or help me even understand what my, you know, what my threats might be so I can understand how better to protect my stuff. What, what advice do you give? And then maybe follow it up with, how is that going to change when Pluton comes around? Or maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be the same because it's kind of TPM-ish. Yeah. So, so my two main recommendations would be first, if you you should you should set up BitLocker, and when you set up BitLocker to encrypt your disk, please do use a PIN, and that PIN is actually very critical. It, it means there's an extra layer of decryption needed to recover the keys, and most people find it a little bit annoying that you have to type in a PIN every time mm. you boot you boot the machine. But if you're truly paranoid about the data on your on your computer and don't want anybody that steals your laptop to be able to get it, that pin is very critical. So please do that. The other thing uh, more for ransomware than anything else is uh, people should get into the habit of storing everything important in the cloud um, so that you have backups of any anything that you truly deem like, I, I, if I lose this, it's, 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 it's really bad. This way you can, you will never be threatened by ransomware or anything like that, the, I'll just like reformat hard, hard drive, reinstall my operating system and download all the files I need from my cloud service uh, again. So that that's something that uh, people don't think about that much, but, but it should be done if you're truly paranoid about ransomware. So let me pick a couple of those things apart a bit. One of the things about Windows that Actually, honestly, I find it a little frustrating is that you can't do BitLocker on a lot of like basic Windows home systems. It doesn't come as part of the OS, right? Or has that changed? I think you're right, uh, at least in the past, and it could still be right now. BitLocker is a Windows Pro feature. So Windows Home 
does not have this feature. And a lot of consumers buy Windows Home. Right. Um, so if you want a BitLocker, you might need to upgrade to Windows Pro in order to enable this feature. Gotcha. And it, just out of curiosity, is there is there another another angle to get to that, or is that? I mean, I guess actually, if, even if you upgrade to Windows Pro, and it'll probably tell you this when you upgrade, because I think Windows does the check for you. You do need to have a certain level of TPM capability, kind of like right now with Windows 11 upgrade. There's a there's a procedure to check whether or not your system is upgradable to Windows 11. I've got two. One of mine is, and one of mine isn't. And I think part of the process for determining whether or not you can update to Windows 11 is support for for TPM. So even if you have Windows Home, you might still need new hardware to upgrade to Windows Pro. Is that correct? So for Windows 11, yes, you, you require a TPM. For past Windows versions, uh, it's not a requirement, but obviously the system will be more secure if you have a TPM. But it's still possible pre-Windows 11 to still enable BitLocker on devices without a TPM. And in such a case, again, I strongly advise to use a PIN because if you don't have a PIN and you don't even have a TPM, it's pretty much the, the key to decrypt your disk is sitting on your disk. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not really worth that much. So if you don't have a TPM, then they definitely enable a PIN. One last question. Can you use a hardware key instead of a PIN, like a YubiKey? I don't think we've enabled that, but I could be wrong. It's certainly possible to, to do that, but it means you're, um, you would need this key plugged in mm -hmm. all the time to just boot your system. And if you ever lose that key, you kind of lose, lose everything on the phone. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I'm not sure that's an experience everybody wants. <laughs> I'm also kind of skeptical because reading a reading from a USB key a lot of booting needs to happen to bring up uh, mm. drivers and everything just to read, to have a conversation with your USB peripheral. And I think uh, the BitLocker is needed way before that. So I kind of doubt we would be able to fetch the key from a USB device. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was really important, I think. And I think it was a great explanation of what's going on under the covers. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It was a great to have this chat. All right, guys, you made it through. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> I know that was technical. I know that was a propeller hat kind of episode. Uh, so thanks for hanging in there. It was important stuff. And uh, Microsoft is doing great work here. And so I applaud their efforts. This is wonderful. All right, before we go, a couple updates for you. First of all, I got a really great podcast review. Uh, I want to thank this person. They gave their name as HMCIV. It was a five-star review, and uh, this is what it says. It's a, it was titled, An Entertaining Must for One Member in Every Family. And this person says, When Apple announced its CSAM tracking plans, and if you recall, CSAM is child sexual abuse material, I suddenly realized that my comfortable life as a digital enthusiast and reluctant family tech support operator was over. My kiddie pool knowledge of digital self-defense was now overwhelmed by the riptide of privacy theft that I had been swimming in with billions of my closest friends. Enter the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons podcast. Carrie Parker's relaxed conversational tone, his comprehensive coverage and clear explanations of current events, and his in-depth interviews with renowned experts made me hide a little deeper under my tinfoil-lined bed. But he also gives me confidence that we as individuals and as a community can protect ourselves from and maybe even reverse the growing dangers outside our portcullises. 
nice little castle reference there. The portcullis is that big metal gate-looking thing that always slams down on the drawbridge uh, when the invaders are coming to the gate. That's the portcullis. Okay, so now I've got some updates for you on the podcast fifth anniversary massive giveaway. <laughs> it started started last week and it took me a little while to get the the I's dotted and the T's crossed to get that out. Uh, so it didn't quite have all the details uh, when the podcast aired last week. But it started on Tuesday and it's going to go till April 1st. So you still got a few weeks to do it. And again, the whole point of, of this promotion really is to reach more people. So obviously I want all of you to have a chance to win this stuff. But what I really would like you to do and what I really need your help doing is to reach more people. And one of the things that this contest allows you to do is get extra entries into the contest by referring friends. So if you can refer some friends, I think up to five, that'll give you up to five extra entries into this contest. So let me tell you what is in this contest. And it's a lot of stuff. Like it really, it adds up to quite a lot of money. So first of all, there's going to be 10 total winners separated into three tiers. There's a single grand prize winner, which takes away a lot of good loot. Uh, then there's a tier two and a tier three, four people in tier two and five in tier three. So Everybody, all 10 winners are going to get a start mail subscription for a year and a malware bite subscription for one year. That alone is worth a hundred bucks, the two of them together. Everyone, every winner is going to get a copy of my book. Uh, the grand prize winner will get a signed physical copy of my book and uh, everyone else in tier two and tier three will get a PDF copy of my book. So tier three is going to get all three of those things, a PDF of my book, a start mail subscription and malware bite subscription. That's about 125 bucks worth of stuff. So for tier two, you're also going to get two other subscriptions and a really great class from TechLore called Go Incognito. And it's all about privacy. And these guys have some great videos, and this is a really good one. And you're also going to get a fast mail email subscription for one year and a, a Priv subscription. That was the really cool privacy app I talked to you about a while back. And I think I'll have to check and see if they have the Android version out yet, but I know it's on iOS. And all of that together and for tier two, that's like 340 bucks worth of stuff for tier two. And for the grand prize winner, and because these are physical objects that are heavy and would be really hard to ship internationally, unfortunately, the grand prize winner will need to be in the United States. Now, all these other ones are digital. They can happen anywhere on the planet. So all I need is your email address, and I can send you the prizes. However, the grand prize winner, just to make things simple, needs to be in the United States. So, But the grand prize winner is going to get a ton of stuff. So like I said, they'll get a signed physical copy of my book. They're going to get a hardback version of Privacy is Power by Carissa Valiz, a great book. And they're going to get some other great technical books from A-Press, my, uh, my author. They were very kind to throw in some free books that I could give away. Uh, I, I'll let you go to my website to get the details on those. But they're, they're kind of techie things. And Startpage agreed to throw in a t-shirt. But wait, there's more. YubiKey, who makes these really cool hardware security keys. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. Very kindly offered me two of their latest YubiKey 5 NFC based hardware keys, a two pack worth 90 bucks. So if you add all that stuff up, the grand prize tier is worth over $600. In fact, if you add all these prizes of all 10 prizes, it's, it's like $2,600 worth of stuff, which is just awesome. So big thanks to uh, Startpage and A-Press and Priv and Fastmail and TechLore and Startmail and Malwarebytes and YubiKey. Thank you all. Uh, for contributing uh, to this contest and making it so valuable. So real quick, so this YubiKey thing, and I haven't talked about them much, but uh, they're little hardware keys that fit in USB slots, and they allow you to 
kind of it's kind of a password replacement sort of so if you want to lock something with something besides a password that you don't have to remember as long as you can carry this key with you and put it in the computer where you want to use it uh, there's usually a little touch thing you you touch the key somewhere that automatically outputs this kind of like a password thing so uh, if, if you want something that's really secure because no one else would use it unless they physically stole this thing from you uh, you can use this to protect your stuff and it's nice to have two of them because that way you can make a backup so it's great that they gave me two of these things that I can give away for the grand prize. And one last thing for the grand prize winner, they will get one of my challenge coins. So great stuff. I've already gotten a lot of entrance and there, there's so many different ways to enter this contest. So you can stuff the ballot box and put all sorts of entries in here. If you check off all the things, most of them are very simple. Uh, but again, one of the big ones is referring people. And, you know, ideally I want to refer this to people who would really stick around and keep listening to the podcast or keep being subscribed to the newsletter. Sometimes when you do contests like this, the, the word gets out and there are people out there that will just enter anything, you know, so they're going to start following me on Twitter just long enough to get the entry and then they're going to drop, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get lucky and I will somehow entice them to stay. Uh, but, you know, ideally you want to refer this to people who would actually be interested in this. You know, my goal again for 2022 is, and it, it's going to be a, a tough one, but I'm trying uh, to see how close I can get to doubling my audience. And that is the newsletter subscribers, the podcast listeners, and the social media followers, probably particularly on Twitter is probably the main one. So if you would, please help me spread the word on this contest. $2,600 worth of great stuff. Everything except the grand prize is available anywhere on the planet. And I'm really, really trying to reach more people. The more people that do these basic, simple things to secure their lives, uh, the better we will all be. It really is kind of a herd immunity thing. We don't all have to do this, but the more of us that do this, the better off all of us will be, even those of us who have not taken some of these simple precautions. But the more people we can reach, the better. So please help me do that. Spread the word on this contest and people can learn about all this stuff and maybe take home some really cool privacy and security swag. All right, everybody, next week will be another news show, and I'll have another installment of my de-Google My Life. I think I'll probably have two more of those installments left, and that'll wrap up that project. And then after that, I've got a really cool interview with Henry from TechLore. Those are the guys that made that great uh, Go Incognito program that is being given away as part of this contest. We had a great time talking together. <laughs> we are really kindred spirits. So that will be the week after that. And I've got a lot of other great interviews in the pipeline. So subscribe. If for some reason you haven't, subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss any of this stuff. And enter the contest and spread the word. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next week, as always, everybody, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.